Welcome to the Legendarium. I promise I will not nose whistle. Although no we did what, already get some from Ryan. No so matter what good. it requires. And I've also been following you keep the saying that. Fans. I think you're just, you're full of s***. <laughs> wow. Oh. I think I'd better leave that alone for a while. Okay, we didn't stay that rowdy the whole time, but we did have a lot of fun discussing Belgariad Volume 1, Pawn of Prophecy. So follow along. Hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks. Welcome back to the full Legendarium Brain Trust. I'm very, very excited. All four of us are back in the room. I, of course, am Craig Hanks. Uh, you are fully armed and operational podcast. I hate you. Oh, man, I, how often do I get to finish an entire thought on this podcast? Who had 30 seconds before he was not glad we were back? That was 17 seconds. I had 22 seconds that he was going to take oh, until we finished it. Shut up, you guys. Okay, I am Craig Hanks. With me, of course, uh, is the legendary and brain trust. Now, he brought pizza, so I'm allowing him to stay. It's my co-host, Ryan Bruckman. Hello, everyone. And he's so ripped, his abs have their own entourage. It's Ken Johnson. You can't spell train wreck without this guy. I, I can. Um, <laughs> and as a child, he was found in the foothills of the Ural Mountains and raised by a family of unicorns. It's Todd Wenty. I'm going to leave the unicorn comment alone. <laughs> All right. Now, before... We turn things over to Ryan because that's what we're doing today. I have to uh, give a big shout out, a big thank you to myself uh, for the Lord of the Rings episodes that we did um, in our original um, our original series was the Lord of the Rings series. And I'm very grateful to myself that uh, even though it went on really long, it was 17 episodes, at least I only assigned Ryan three to five chapters uh, per episode. Uh, Ryan assigned us an entire book. Granted, it wasn't a huge book, so that's good. I but figured you all were big boys. You could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not make the same assumption about you. Uh, we are tackling uh, David Edding's Belgariad series. It's a cycle of five books, and we did the entire first book uh, for this podcast. So if you are listening along uh, and you're interested in reading before listening, go ahead and uh, and shut this podcast off. Go read it. It's only 200 or so pages, depending on which edition you have. Uh, and it's a it's a fairly quick read. So, it's called the Pawn of Prophecy. The Pawn of Prophecy. And at that, maybe we better turn it over to Ryan because this one's his baby. Uh, yeah. Tell us more about it, Ryan. So first, this story, this whole series is one of the first fantasy series that I really got into, and that's why I'm really excited about bringing it in here. Um, I'm going to start here. Let's let's give for those of you who have decided to continue on, whether you've read or 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 not. Uh, let's let's give you a little summary as to what's gone on in the book so far here. I'm um, in this series. So we start this story literally at the beginning with the creation of the world by seven gods who dwell together in peace until the god Aldur creates a powerful orb containing a living soul. His brother Torak gets a bit jealous and steals the orb and uses the power to try and destroy the world. Well, the orb doesn't respond well to that and in turn burns the left side of Torak's body just to cinders. So Torak and his people decide to take the orb and they put it in an iron tower. Knowing the danger of leaving the orb with Torak, the king of the Alorns... I know it's a lot of names to throw around here. And his two sons go along with Belgarath the sorcerer to successfully reclaim the orb. The orb is then left in the care of the only person who could hold it, the youngest son named Riva, and his line is tasked with caring for the orb. And that's all the first six pages. Okay, so we jump ahead a thousand years or so, and we find ourselves at the start of the story with our main character, Garion. 
the unknowing heir to the line of Riva. 7,000 years. 7,000? Some had a few thousand. 7,000. Whatever. Uh, Garion has been raised by his Aunt Pole to a very simple life on Father's farm, but when a storyteller, Mr. Wolf, also known as Belgrath the Sorcerer, comes with the news that the Orb of Alder has been stolen and that it could lead to the awakening of the god Torak, Garion's life as a simple farm boy changes as he is carried off on the journey to track down the thief and reclaim the orb. Now, along with Garion, Aunt Pole, who happens to be the daughter of Belgarath, named Polgara, uh, Dernick the blacksmith and Belgarath, we meet two others, Silk, an acrobat prince and intelligence agent, and Beric, a warrior that brings to mind the Vikings of old. Now, the search for the thief is cut short as they are arrested and summoned by the kings of Aloria to Valalorn. And while roaming the palace of Valalorn, Garion uh, discovers a plot, and uh, later on uh, he sees this guy in a green, uh, green cloak that keeps reappearing, so he decides to tell some people about it and ends up averting a rather large issue. Um, war. Yeah, a little bit of a war. That's a very large a issue. A little bit a of coup, a war. A coup of some sort. <laughs> So I would hate to see Ryan try to describe a major issue. Right. <laughs> so after all that happens, Garion, as they're leaving to, to go track down the thief again, uh, he, did, he learns that Polgara is Belgarath's daughter and his aunt. Uh, he is really his aunt and that Belgarath is his grandfather. And at that, we find our heroes taking off on the next part of their journey and the end of the first book. And, so. and, and nothing, nothing much happens. There's a lot of traveling in this book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I was really shocked by. So, uh, you know, Ryan comes – or I, I guess I went to Ryan and said, hey, what are we doing next? We've done a, a bunch of projects that I was really excited about. What do you want to do? And he says, Belgariad. I say, okay, great. Yeah, I've, I've heard that name. I need to read it. I'll read it. So I pick it up and I get to page 50 and nothing's happened. I They're still page, on the farm. I get to page They're still in the Shire. Nothing's <laughs> happened. I get to page 150 and, okay, something's got to happen. And then about 175, yeah, there's a little battle in the castle, but, the, you know, that takes a half page to resolve. And then nothing happens. You get to the end of the book. Now, that being said, the only reason that that really jumped out to me is because I'm used to very different things now. I'm used to the Brandon Sanderson style of go, go, action. Yeah. You know, even if it's not Brandon Sanderson, you step away from the fantasy genre. That's very much the modern novel, right? Uh, stuff is always happening. Yeah. You read Dan Brown and it's exciting. You know, you cannot stop turning the pages. This is not that way. But, 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 before I stop talking, I've got to say, I loved this book. I loved it. Notice we allowed him to finish a sentence. I know. I know. He's not going to give us any credit for it either. Not just a sentence, but a full thought. I want someone out there that is keeping track. Mark down that on this date, we allowed Craig to finish an entire sentence. And yet somehow I still hate you. (laughs) We expect that. One of the things that I think is really interesting, um, and, and maybe it's partly an outgrowth of when the book was published, um, it was uh, the the original series when it was released by David Eddings was released in the early eighties. Eighty two. Um, this came out in eighty two. And so we're looking at um, at a period of time where the fantasy genre is is evolving around some of the stable set pieces that we're thinking about that we take for granted. Um, when I first came in contact with this book, because uh, I came in contact with it about nineteen eighty four, um, so right after it came out, and I was very impressed that it felt like. I was reading a Dungeons and Dragons module where we're introducing everybody and we're doing all the traveling and all those kinds of things. It it felt very much like it was being explored. And some of the things that we take for granted now, the Imidia Ray processes, where we drop people in the middle of stuff and then we fill in all the details later, wasn't really how they were approaching the writing of fantasy genre back then. And this was a few years post 
D&D, right? So D&D had been around since the mid-70s-ish, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and fair. so And so some of those uh, set pieces, like you say, were they were getting to be well-established. Um, and so you have the the young orphan, the old wizard, the the blacksmith, the simple blacksmith. You have the warrior, the, the rogue. Thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those and are very recognizable now. Another thing that was really interesting for me as I read this, um, I don't know whether we've ever talked about the Lloyd Alexander series. Oh, we will. Um, but it felt. I, I remember when I was first reading it, and when I've gone through and read it again, it felt very much like the Taran Wanderer series. In the in the pieces in the set pieces and the way that they're setting things up, in the fact that we have this individual who's being raised on a farm and yet we're very aware that he's probably not going to turn out to be just a simple farmer, that there's something much bigger about his right. world and his life. I they often get those do. two series. Uh, th- those two series in my mind interchange the Belgariad and um, the the Terran Wanderer. The it's the Lear series or something like that. Nah, it's I'll look it up later. I can't remember exactly what it's called. But anyway, um, those I did not get that vibe very much now i grew up with uh with taron and his companions um but those books are very much written for children yeah and they feel that way it's very simple the language is simple the characters are simple the the conflicts are simple this one is um it's written for adults it takes an adult understanding to get you know to to grasp fully what's going on and to get all the jokes that are being thrown at you which are many and hilarious um and so and they keep coming. Just wait till book five. <laughs> oh, um, our first wait until book five. I've been waiting at least to 15 minutes to say that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, would you agree, Ryan, though? I mean, this this isn't a kid's book necessarily, so although this, children would enjoy it. I feel like this series sits very nicely for me kind of in that on, on the higher end of a middling range between the children. Because I do agree with you that the, the Castle of Lear, the Terran Wander, all those stories – they do tend to sit for a, a little bit younger audience there. Um, this series doesn't carry necessarily the wordy weight of something like Lord of the Rings or, or Ooh, I like have that. something to say on this, but finish your thought. So it doesn't carry that, that wordiness that a lot of times can, can bog down a, an adult novel, but it carries an, a, a more complex story to follow. And he is playing the long game here in writing this. That's why, you know, that's the one thing that is very different, as you talked about earlier, about our current situation of reading books, that everything's happening, go, 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 go. And you have to have a resolution at the end of the book. Yeah, this one is... so here. You just kind of, it it feels like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to end this book and we're going to go on to the next one. And there there's no major, there's a there's an event, but no major resolution to the story itself. Yeah, yeah. this one, this one is clearly feels like it was written with multiple books in mind. Now, I, I do think, yeah. I, I want to bring this up. It's going to, it might be a little derail here a little bit, but it's... Craig, I think you'll appreciate this. I don't know if any of you know how this book, story, book like this storyline came to be, this book came to be at all. Um, David Eddings had written a few other stories already, and he, a lot of them are coming-of-age novels. And he drew on a, uh, a just kind of a, one morning he was doodling, and he drew a map. And that was the basis of this story was a map first. And I remember Craig during the Lord of the Rings series being maps, 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 loving about <laughs> So it started with a map that he just kind of tossed to the side, and a few years later he was in a bookstore, he saw a copy of Lord of the Rings and said, is this old turkey still floating around? <laughs> Realized that this, because it was in its 78th printing, that fantasy still had somewhere to be and that he would start to write it. And so he decided that he was going to take that old map that he wrote, that he did, 
and create a story here, and then he created the long story there. Oh, the, that's pretty the long cool. Story here. Yeah. So, so nice. Lord of the Rings did have a large, a large hand in, oh, in creating. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's Are we going to have to listen to Craig tell us that Lord of the Rings influences everything for another series? Probably. <laughs> that's um, unnecessary. I mean, if you can't, <laughs> if you can't taste. Tolkien through these pages, then you're not paying attention. As anyway, granted, but I'll it is that. that is interesting. I like that little factoid because when you read the Lord of the Rings, it's uh, one of the interesting things about it is that it came to be through his creation of a language, and he he made these stories and he made the maps and he made everything else to fit around these languages that he'd made. Now you have David Eddings who has this map and he goes, ah, oh, yeah, I wonder, you know, why are these mountains here and how would that separate these two people and what what would be the politics around that geography and um you know that's yeah i like that and that, that gives it a little extra flavor for me so now i'm excited for book two ryan i, I thought you'd like that and if it's like i said it, the nice thing is is there is there is enough depth to this story as we were talking about just a, a, few, a couple minutes ago there's enough depth to this story to be uh palatable to the adult palate um but it's not that was so a great deep. sentence. Thank you. By the I way, know. My friend. Very redundant. <laughs> department of redundancy department. Um, but it. But without being as wordy, like that was the one thing. Um, like as I've had my wife was reading Lord of the Rings for a while, and we were doing those. Things, was it just it, you had to slog through language sometimes? And I haven't mm-hmm. felt like I've had to do with do that in this book at all. So let me let me pick up on that real quick uh, because this is one of the points I wanted to bring up. You you do have to slog through the prologue, right? The prologue is very that scripturally is. worded. Yeah. Um, it, it's you know nothing but these and thous, and David Eddings doesn't have a perfect handle on that sort of language. No, he doesn't. But he has a much better handle on it than most modern fantasy authors. Uh, and so when I read the prologue, um, it, that kind of gave me, that got me into the fantasy mindset, and that was good. Um, it was it was a little bit weird. It wasn't perfect. But then I got into the chapters themselves. And you said earlier, Ryan, this is, um, you know, not a, a wordy slog like, uh, like Lord of the Rings is, but it's so far elevated above something like the Book of Three or Terran Wanderer, that, that Lloyd Alexander style, that he, uh, I found myself wanting to turn the page and keep reading because the writing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's very, very nice to read. Now, you have to have a taste for this sort of thing, whether that's an acquired taste or a natural taste for this. But But if you do, if you do enjoy that high fantasy style, then this is, and, and, and I should say, if you enjoy that and you haven't read David Eddings, then this is kind of, I, I feel like, the beginning of all that. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it was one of the, one of the things that I noticed about the difference is that, and I, and I wonder, you know, we've talked before about when we were talking about our heroes of sci-fi about how the language of the time makes things approachable or un, or less approachable for us in our time. And I'm wondering if this book will stand the test of time or the series will stand the test of time because its language is so much more comfortable um, it, for us, do we recognize it that way? And is it a result of having lived in that time where his approach, his style, his his writing, and his handle of the language is much more contemporary than Tolkien, than H.G. Uh, Wells? And 100 years from now, will people be saying, wow, 
he's really worried like Tolkien was for his day. I, because there is a lot of language. There's a lot of writing. And while it may not be as difficult to slog through because the language structure is much more familiar, I think when we, if we were to sit down and do a word count between this and Lord of the Rings, I don't think we're too far out of the zip code for each other as far as actual number of pages, n- amount of words. It's just the kind of wording, the kind of dialogue, the kind of language that's being How used. many tree trunk rings that this one's describing? Well, versus- so that I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> David Eddings does not get as much into the the setting. It's more about right. the characters and their thoughts, right? Um, Whereas Tolkien did not spend as much time with the characters. He let the characters speak their emotions he, he, and speak what was going on. He got into them later, you know, when you yeah. get into the Two Towers and Return of the King. Uh, but they're not the not, – not the – but he introduces you to the world first, not the characters. Yes. David yes. Eddings is Good, much happier much to get said. into the, the characters uh, right away. Uh, I think I think there is actually – there's a moment in this book where he actually almost in a self-aware laughter, break the fourth wall type moment here. Um, at this point, Belgarath, he's standing in front of all the kings. They've all – they've brought him in there. Um, and uh, one of the kings uh, says to him – says, Art thou aware, Belgarath, of the misfortune with hath befallen us? We turn to thee for counsel. Chohag, Wolf said testily, you sound like a bad orrendish epic. Is all this thing and thouing really necessary? And Chohag looked embarrassed and glanced at King Anheg. It's my fault, Belgarath, Anheg said ruefully. I set scribes to, wor- set scribes to work to record our meetings. Chohag was speaking to history as well as to you. History is a very tolerant, Anheg. You don't have to try and impress her. She'll forget most of what we say anyway. It's <laughs> a great line. <laughs> yeah, I had a good laugh at that one. And and I'm glad that he takes that uh, that attitude because, like I said at, at the beginning of this discussion, he's not perfect at it. There were He made some errors, especially in the prologue with his these and thous and his yees and yous. And, um, anyway, and so that, that took me out a little bit, and I'm glad that he didn't think – oh, well, I've got to stay in this epic mode or else it's not a fantasy novel. He says, no, okay, that's that's fine for prologue where we're writing a creation story, but I'd better get out of that and, and just write, mm-hmm. you know. But um, to Todd's point about will this be, you know, could this stand the test of time, I do think that with a book like this, it's much more likely if you are willing to elevate the language at least a little bit. Yeah. Because there, if you read... Let's let's compare again to Brandon Sanderson. If you read him, his language is so rooted in 21st century dialectal American English that, you know, in 100 years, it's going to be like us reading Charles Dickens or something. It's okay. Well, you know, yeah, weird people used to talk that way. Yeah, if you know the time, then the book makes sense. Yeah, versus something like this where he, he kind of takes out takes it out of its uh, colloquial time. Yeah, he doesn't use a lot of idioms mm-hmm. that that are immediately that are that are that are eighties. But we understand what he means, right? But he doesn't use the the exact language from those from those situations. Brandon Sanderson did that on occasion. Yeah. Uh, there were some there were some moments that I was reading and I went oh yeah okay I know where he heard that from right um, but but David Eddings does a pretty decent job of staying away from that kind of stuff he also does a very good job of not a, of you know we talked about elevating language but I one of my favorite things about this series and especially this first book I'm trying to remember I kind of feel like it it stays consistent through the series but it diminishes a little bit towards the end is the humor that he's utilized in his writing. You know, we kind of – I read a line there just a moment that was – you know, it's funny. And he takes the time 
throughout the entirety of this story to utilize humor, you know, through the characters to help us know who these characters are to to, to kind of go through. Uh, Silk is freaking hilarious. He's he's and, always funny. And he gets yeah. funnier. He gets <laughs> that's one of the things that's really that's, that was fun for me. This is my third time through this series. Uh, the first time I read it in the 80s, the second time I read it while well, my wife was reading it and now going through it again. And I'm still laughing at the things that I read that I that I say to myself. I remember that was funny before. It was funny again. It's just mm-hmm. he is such a well-written character uh, and the and the interchange between uh, between characters. He, David Eddings does a really wonderful job of writing believable character interaction for me, at least. Um, and that was one of the, that was one of the things that I loved about the book the first time through and why I continue to think it's one that I recommend to people. It's great. Uh, I think the character interaction, especially between, uh, we talked about Silk being hilarious. Garion learns over time to, to really trust Silk and to, to go to Silk because Silk knows everything. Silk seems to have an answer for everything and that's kind of his job. That's in his business. Yeah. And because of who he is and because of his quick wittedness and everything, we get these great, moments of just very funny things uh, trying to explain stuff trying to warn things about it um I, and yet I, never heavy-handed never heavy-handed nope but i i pulled a few lines from this book that they were some of my favorites as i was going along and i'm marking things i'm going okay this is a f- i love this line i love this line so i'm going to pull a couple of them and some of them are spoken by uh the characters and a couple of them are written just by david eddings um one of my favorites here had me laugh. I had to put the book down because I was laughing so hard. And it may not be that funny, but it said, <laughs> We'll be the judge of that. One could spend only so much time in the company of a dead pig without becoming depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I just, you, Henwin. <laughs> I was just laughing. I was sitting there going, That is a very simple line, but I laughed for like two minutes straight just because of the simplicity there. Um, and then uh, Barrack has one. When he says a prudent man doesn't uh, doesn't give either a priest or a woman the opportunity to, to scold him in public, <laughs> just a little bit of advice. Very witty, very well written. I I love it. And those those are, like I said, through the whole thing, uh, whether it be through character interaction or just David Eddings taking a moment to say, "Hey, yeah, this is." Let me explain something here. Um, but speaking specifically to the characters, uh, rather than just doing favorite characters, each of these characters to me has a very specific representation. You know, they kind of fit a specific mold there. What did you find as you were reading the characters that you liked, that you liked best about, you know, pick a, you know, Ken, pick a character and say, you know, what was your favorite thing about this character and why he fit that, his mold? I, uh, I don't know. I, I honestly, to, to say pick a character, I'm like, I don't know. They all, they all were very enjoyable characters and that's. That's uh, great, I, Ken. Now pick a character. That's all. That's a credit to David Evans. <laughs> I really liked Wolf. You liked he's, Wolf. He's my favorite. <laughs> there you go. I'm done. No, okay. I I really did like I, I really did like Mr. Wolf. I liked. Uh, now I can't remember his name. <laughs> uh, What's uh, Belgrath. 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 Thank you. I'm like I know that I know the name. I read this book really. Um, he, I like the change in him. How even when you very first see him and he comes through as this mysterious old storyteller that just kind of rambles into town and then rambles out again and you know he comes and he goes. And you can tell that there's something more to him. And when you see all of the stuff kind of develop along the way, and if you're paying attention, you can kind of figure out what it is. You can kind of figure out who he is. But it's fun to see that evolve and and just to see – I like surly characters, you know, because 
it's close to home. So to see him kind of, you <laughs> know, not short, typecasting at all there. Right. Is that Ken? So short, short tempered. And, and just to see him, you know, you're wasting my time. I got to get stuff done. Get out, you know, stop delaying. See, and, I, and I, I saw Aunt Paul as more surly than, mm-hmm. than Wolf uh, yeah. or Belgarath or whatever we want to call him, which brings up another thing that I'll talk about later. Names uh, are like clothes. You any, anyway. Um, yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, she was she was really surly. I, I liked uh, the way that our main character was presented, uh, whose name is... Garion. Garion, thank you. Um, yeah, I promise I read this book, right, Ken? <laughs> right. There you um, go. No, I mean, we. Hey, hey, in fairness to us, there are <laughs> 5 million characters in 190 pages. I know, right? And, and a 5 million places, too. It is. He gives George R.R. R. Martin a run for his money when it comes to people and places and names. So, anyway. Um, the Wait reason I. Five. The reason I like Garion so much um, isn't necessarily that his character is is so great but because of the way that uh, that he's written here by David Eddings uh, and that's we get a little bit of a a Harry Potter thing here one of the one of the strengths of Harry Potter I feel is that uh, with very rare exceptions we're looking down on Harry watching his experiences and if he doesn't experience it we don't experience it and so when he's in the dark we're in the dark now that kind of irritated Dave, me. David Eddings he does just like um, I like I said with Harry Potter, there are some exceptions to that. David Eddings it gives us the prologue where he tells us all about this backstory and there's this orb and there's this family with where the men have this symbol on their palms and this sorceress with a white streak in her hair so that when we meet Aunt Paul, we know. We know who she is. Right. And when the mark is talked about on Hungarian's uh, hand, we know who he is. But we still can then sympathize with him as he goes through his journey. He doesn't know. We get frustrated frustrated along with him, or for him, I should say, as he is looking for his answers. That, I really like him. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, is that it, it bugged me, and I think it was by design, that it bugged me that any time Garion wasn't experiencing something, we weren't experiencing something. And so they would go into another room, and I'd be like, well, I want to hear what they're talking about. But I'm stuck here with the 12 year old boy. But he always finds a way to give him a secret passageway or something. Exactly. To, he you always, know, let him over here. I'm going to look at these tapestries over here, which I've done that. You know, so I'm going to busy myself over here so I can conveniently hear what's going on. Yeah, I've I've done that before too. And I've seen Ken's house. There are tapestries in the house everywhere. Very many fine tapestries. But <laughs> it, the way that he writes Gary, and you can tell that this is very much designed for a teenager could follow us or a preteen or that it's it's i would have enjoyed this book had i read books when i was this age <laughs> you know. i never learned to read <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. okay todd what about you favorite like character favorite character that connect in the connections um I guess part for me i've having read having read both of these series i'm seeing these characters differently now than i saw them when i first experienced them and so for me, it's a, it's a little different. Um, I love Aunt Paul uh, as, a, as a character. I had several individuals in my life that were like this person who were uh, very aware that their responsibility was to make sure that I was taken care of and that, um, and that I did my duty. Um, and so all of this other stuff, regardless of what it might be and how important it might be, took second place to making sure that the responsibilities were taken care of. Um, 
but as I went through and and have and have come back to these stories over and over again, my my two favorite characters, one of them has been introduced so far, and that's Silk, and we've talked about him. Um, I'm going to hold off talking about my second favorite for a little while. Um, now you've got me sitting here with my head. Tilted, yeah, well, to, let's what? let's wait until book two. Two, I think or it's whatever. I think we, he shows up in book two. If okay. I remember correctly. Okay. Okay. So well, you, you just shut your yapper because it's really fun. I, I love Dernick. In this book, I love I love Dernick. Um, mm-hmm. He is the he he is the stabilizing influence um, to this entire band of of individuals who seem swept up by by things beyond their control. Um, and Dernick wanders through and makes sure they have something to eat and makes sure that they take warm clothes. And he he seems very much to me like my father was. You um, know, I, I feel very like very practical individual. When we start the book, we're in Sendar. Is that what the country is called? Uh, and these Sendarians are are portrayed as very sensible, down to earth, very Hobbit like, right? Um, and we think, okay, well, we've got Aunt Pole, we've got uh, Old Wolf, we've got Garion, we've got Durnick, and one by one, all of these Sendarians get taken away from us. We find out that no, these aren't Sendarians at all, and we're left. But we, we've got to have somebody in that mold. We've got to have the everyman. And that's and that's Dernick. that's what he feels. Yeah, that's Turnick. He's the stabilizing agent in this volatile mixture. I, you know, he really is. He really is. I I love Dernick as, and I like that you could describe him as a stabilizing force there, because a lot of times characters like this are dull. They're boring because they don't they don't want to be engaged. They don't want to they, you know they don't want to go to action. They don't want to. And that's not the case with Dernick. Dernick just wants to be sensible about as long things. as it makes sense. Right. Yeah. As long as it makes sense. He talks when he gets pulled into the council with the kings, and they're saying. You know, well, if send you know if Sendaria gets uh, invaded, we're going to have a problem. We're going to be overrun quickly. And he says, "Hold on, you're doing a discredit to the Sendarian people because they will fight. They care about their land, and they will. You know, we will burn our fields so they don't have food. We will do what we need to do." And it was nice to have a character that can be a be an anchor for a whole group without being the fuddy duddy, without being the pushover. Yeah, yeah. So, can we talk about magic? Yes. Yes, let's talk about what is referred to eventually when you get to the end as the will and the word. Oh, yeah, that was like right at the bitter end, wasn't yep. it? Like yeah. two pages two pages from the end, and all of a sudden this here. Oh, yeah, by the way, that magic you've seen before, it has a name, the will and the word. And then Belgarath says it takes a few minutes to explain, and this is how it works. It's not that complicated. So, um, But it's – okay, so it's not that complicated. We'll get there, how the magic works and stuff. But I, I, I love – when we get slowly introduced to a magic system. Um, and furthermore, I love when magic in a book is implied um, rather mm-hmm. than explained. And so it back way back in Chapter 2, when Garion is still a little kid, um, he almost drowns in the pond uh, mm-hmm. or whatever it was, the lake. Um, and then he looks over on the shore and he sees something. And I'll, I'll read a quick passage. A movement caught Garion's eye, and he glanced up quickly. A man in a dark cloak sat astride a large black horse not far away, watching intently. When their eyes met, Garion felt a momentary chill, and he knew that he had seen the man before, that indeed the dark figure had hovered on the edge of his vision for as long as he could remember, never speaking, but always watching. And it's, uh, it's a really, 
chilling little passage, isn't it? Um, but there's this sense that, yeah, there is magic in this world, but we don't know how it works. We don't know what it is, you know, and, and we don't know if this really was magic, but, uh, but David Ennings does a good job of, of making it feel magical, whether it is or not. Yeah. He doesn't, um, he doesn't use magic as a, as a primary driver of the story. Um, magic is a, is a, um, it's a, it's a part of the world, but it is not the principal part and it is not the, uh, principal piece of, that drives the story. Unlike Mistborn, um, in Mistborn, it is all about, um, Allomancy. It is, and that's, that's what drives so much of the story for so much of the, of the series. Um, but when, when we get into David Eddings, his, his use of that is that it is one of many tools available to this group of individuals. And so he uses it very, very discreetly, very, very, um, judiciously. I think, especially in this in this first book, and there are there are times when we will see that what he is, you know, what he does with this, um, I think, will be very interesting for you that are just experiencing it new. Yeah, and it there are a couple of moments uh, when when Polgana is that her name? Polgara. Polgara. She she uh, makes the rose bloom in her hand, mm-hmm. or when. Um, when Belgareth hides them on the road mm-hmm. from the passing company, there are these moments when you can tell there is magic being used, but it's not being explained. Well, I guess some people would find that frustrating. I found it nice. I found it, uh, again, it, it kind of goes back to that idea that if Garion doesn't know it, we don't know it to a certain extent. Anyway, I, I'm sure I we'll talk Ryan a lot. being really pensive over there. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about the magic uh, as the books go on because the the will and the word just got explained and it seems like a really interesting concept. You and we know from very few a very few moments in the story in here, we know that it Garion has a connection with the magic. When he touches his aunt's hair, things happen. Uh, he's there are little things there, and if you read the book, there's a little thing at the end that says, "In the Queen of Sorcery, Belgarion or Garion will." continue to learn about the sorcerer his abilities with sorcery so you know that it's coming um and yes in this in the next book more will be explained regarding the will and the word and how it works as garion learns to use it because it does follow that very much that concept of if garion doesn't know it to a certain extent we don't know it so it fits really well i've i also appreciate the fact that magic can be allowed to be magical and it doesn't need to be mechanical Mm -hmm. um where you understand all of its workings but at the same time, knowing what's coming here, it's – there are moments in there where I'm like, you know, it would just be nice if if, if Gary knew – you know, why, why don't you let Gary know that he's got these abilities? It's – but that comes from having read it already. So uh, – Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun it's, – it's very much a fun story to be introduced to this world. And I'm and, – and the way that he does it, he does it very gently. He's – I, I think he I think he does a, a a wonderful job of building things that can be expanded upon later, and he just gives you just enough in this first book to be able to say, "Are you interested? If you are, we're going to have a fun run. If you're not, mm-hmm. thank you for enjoying the thank you for joining me. But uh, you know, I'm not concerned about I'm not concerned about trying to keep you. I'm giving you just enough to let you know where we're headed. Agreed. Now, now, Ken, this is definitely your area of expertise, <laughs> but uh, like I said, we were talking about him playing the long game here. Yeah. How did you feel about uh, the romance in this story? <laughs> <laughs> I, I put it out of my mind. 
That's because there isn't really much romance That's in this why. story. That's why. It's great. Although Which can, romance? There's although, so many. You know that there Dern- starts. Dernick has, uh, has a bit of a thing for Aunt Paul, doesn't he? Well, right. we, we see that torch getting carried real early. We, <laughs> you, see it, you see it getting carried early, and you see it getting carried often. And even though there's not romance, there is there are relationships, and it's... And he uses them, you know, interestingly, you know, you see the king of, of, uh, what's his name? Uh, that's Which king? Yeah, good luck. Yeah, exactly. The king of Sindaria <laughs> and, and his wife, you know, you see that they have a relationship that's very nice and very sweet. And then you see that. Uh, sensible the, as the people. It, it's sensible as the people. And you see Barak and his wife have a very cold business-like relation, marriage, you know. She's that, pissed that he got her. Yeah, and it, it is not at all what he thought it was supposed to, was going to be, you know, and everything. She was and, so hot. What happened? <laughs> I know, right? It's like, man, marriage changes a woman. <laughs> Stephanie is going to kill us, right, Ryan? Right, right. Probably there. Ryan's wife. She hasn't read this nuts. yet, so she can't. She won't. She can't speak to. Wait a it. minute, Stephanie hasn't read this yet. No, I turned to her and I said, "You need to read this." So hopefully, she will soon. Oh my good, goodness! Good story. So anyway, it's not bereft of relationships. It's bereft of romance, which is fine for I now. Mean, and well, and, you know, you see the Gary, and he's like, "Oh, you know, that girl's cute," and you know, punches a kid in the nose to impress this girl, and like it, every twelve-year-old boy, exactly. He's yeah, very much his, Todd. He's no, I, fourteen. He's fourteen. Todd. Whatever. Honestly, I didn't like Ken. Still does. I didn't. Real, <laughs> I didn't real see how old he was. I just kind of. Figured he was between twelve and fourteen by the time the book started. To fourteen, the time the fifteen ended. by the time they're in the, they're in Cherik. Yeah. So, so no. anyway, but yeah, I, I didn't mind there not being any romance. I kind of thought so. I I do I, think that there is there are some things that have been established in this book, and hopefully you catch them. Yeah. If you don't catch them, you'll go along later, and on you know maybe on a reread you'll enjoy some of those things. But the fact is, is we meet earlier on that there's a little character named Zubret. In oh, right. Followers right. Farm, and as they put it, she began to develop in ways that made the, that were very interesting to the boys, <laughs> which I laughed at. But Polgara like un- just unleashes her fury on uh, was it Wolf or I don't remember someone because at the concept of leaving him behind. Because what if we came back and he's married and has a child? Yeah, it ruins everything. So we know already that okay, there may not be a romance for Gary in here, and he is only fifteen, fourteen, whatever. 12 at that but time. But we know that whatever. that's going to be coming along. Yeah. There's got to be something. And then we have Dernick and Pohl. We have all the relationships. You have uh, Silk, who no one seems to be able to tie down. The fact is, is there isn't a lot of romance in this story, but you're right. There are relationships and the beginnings of relationships, and that's going to be a theme that carries through this entire series. Mm-hmm. I will say the other thing that was uh, noticeably absent that I surprisingly didn't mind is there is not a lot of punching in this book. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't I, mind I, I that didn't there wasn't a lot of punching? No, I was like Craig. I where the you know, the first fifty pages, the first you know, a hundred pages the I was farm. like, Oh my gosh, come on. This, this is kind of but by by page one hundred when they're actually moving, they're off the they're off the farm long before page one hundred. But when they're off the farm and things are happening, it didn't matter that it wasn't fighting, things were happening and I was interested. Uh, see and see I, I feel yeah, yes, I'm like Todd. Congratulations, Ken. You're growing. Um, <laughs> we're, 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 <laughs> seeing, we're seeing a moment here, ladies and gentlemen. This is this is amazing. But I felt like the 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 language was so well done, and the 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 characterizations were so well done that I didn't mind that we hadn't left the farm yet. When we did leave the farm, it felt very natural. I very much enjoyed seeing Garion from being a toddler all the way up through his uh, into his adolescent years. He spends a chapter on 
each stage of his life and gives us an episode and and they're so engaging and they're so nice uh, nicely done that I didn't mind that at all it's you know if if you want to compare it to leaving the shire then all of our characters are established everybody's there we just take forever leaving the dang shire right, mm-hmm, right. and some people really hate that so um i didn't feel like he did that to us here but the the thing is is you'll find Without doing anything too spoilery, you'll find that there is a reason that it took him a while to leave the farm. Those characters are going to be important? Well, not necessarily those characters are going to be important. It's because there are things that we learned about while following Gary and as he grows up that we need to know that he has inside of him. And yes, they could have done it on the journey. But, like, for example, his natural, his reaction when he decides to reenact the Battle of Vomimbre... Moments like that, um, hearing the voice in his head, mm. things like that have to be established for things that are coming later on. Right. And if they leave too soon and we don't know that, it has to be established on the journey and could detract from the story that's being told there. Right. So I, I, I'm, I agree with you on the sense of I'd love for them to get going. But at the same time, knowing that there are things that that is establishing, I'm okay with it. And it does – Craig's right. It, it's not written boring. It's not like we're reading about just an average everyday thing – happening on the farm, everything that happens in some way shows a, a facet of Garion before he, before he has to become something else. Right. So. Yeah. The, the, I've, I, I've got like five things that I can share quick fire whenever we're ready for that. Go for it, Craig. Okay. So I, I just underlined a bunch of things that I – lines that I thought were great. Um, all right. So here's one for you. Uh, let's see. They, they arrive at the sea. They're at a, a, a shore town, a sea town. Uh, there was a sharp tang to the air. Faint hints of that smell had been coming to him on the wind for the past league or so, but now inhaling deeply, he breathed in that perfume of the sea for the first time in his life. His spirits soared. And when I read that, I thought to myself, what is it about fantasy authors and the sea? <laughs> Have you ever noticed this? It, it, it's and true. it usually has more to do with the shore. Uh, the sounds, the smells, the seagulls, the whatever. It has more to do with the shore of the sea and the thought of the sea. But what is it about that? Do do these men and women show up at the beach one day and then it really just captures their imagination and they must write fantasy books? That's where they do all their writing. You know what I mean? It's And this is only a small moment. And I don't know, maybe it, the sea will play more of a uh, role later on. But uh, But that jumped out to me. All right, here's another one for you. Why are all the people so unhappy? He asked Mr. Wolf. They have a stern and demanding God. Which God is that? Money. <laughs> <laughs> Money's a worse God than Torak himself. Uh, all right, here's another one for you. Courtiers, Barrack snorted with contempt. Not a real man amongst them. <laughs> Unnecessary evil, my dear Barrack. Little jobs require little men, and it's the, the little jobs that keep a kingdom running. Uh, take that for what it's worth. Spoken like a prince. (laughs) Um, Okay, here's one. I'll I'll make this my last one because I do have a little bit of a thought on this one. Uh, Okay, this is, toward the end of the book, they've established, without naming the orb or anything, they've established what the stakes are. This is a really big deal. Uh, And the fate of the world rests in our hands, right? Uh, Let's see. We're playing a deadly game, he told them all. But our enemies are playing one just as deadly. Their dangers as great as ours, and right now no one can predict what what will finally happen. And I like that line a lot because um, so often 
we read a whether it's a fantasy novel or anything else really any story any good story um so often it pits the good guys against the bad guys and the good guys are made to feel like the odds are completely stacked against them they're on the defensive uh the whole world is crashing down on them and only through luck or providence or whatever you want to call it are they going to emerge victorious and i love that now we've got this whole setup for the series in which we've we've spent this book on the hunt and we know that we're going to continue on the hunt later with the good guys. The good guys are not sitting back waiting for bad things to happen. They're going after the bad guys. They're going to hunt down this thief. They're going to prepare for this, these terrible things. And they're going to make sure, like he says here, that the game the bad guys are playing is just as risky for them as it is for the good guys, right? And so it just, that little tweak there changes the stakes a little bit. And I don't know, makes it more, does it make it more realistic? Does it make it more enjoyable? I don't know what it is exactly. You know what it, What makes it enjoyable to me is the fact that it's proactive. And I mean, just like, kind of like you were saying, it, every protagonist in most fantasy stories, it's they're waiting for something to happen. Something comes to them and they've got to react to it. They're doing something. They're they're going out and they're they're actively fighting against them they're actually they're actively trying to stop something it's it's proactive and it's refreshing anyway there agree. You. i think there's something actually about there that kind of brings to mind another another point we don't really know our villain yet we don't have mm-hmm. a villain we yet. don't really have one we Asherac. have we we have a feeling of who the villain may be connected to but we don't know who's we don't know who there's no dark this. lord sauron no there's right. no and there's and there's no and 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 belgarath I, I i i feel like david eddings um and and i i and i recognize that as author that authors will will decide that they're going to speak through all of the characters they're going to give voice to some of the things that they think and some of the things that they do through all of their characters but i have always kind of felt like david eddings was using belgarath as his voice and there are moments when Belgarath gives us glimpses that he knows far more than he can say because no one else will understand the context. Um, I, at least that's, that, as, as, I, as I've gone through and read this, I, I feel like that's the piece that he holds back. He waits for the context to be manifest. And then once the context starts to fill in, he does this with Garion a lot. And, and we look at it from a standpoint of, oh, well, coming of age, that makes sense. I have teenagers. I don't tell them everything all at once. As they grow uh, into a position where they can understand more, then we have more detailed conversations about issues, about, uh, about challenges, about things that they need to know. But I think that David Eddings is using that same tool with us as a reader, waiting for other things to happen so that he can introduce this in a very organic kind of a manner. He actually, it's like the second to last page here. There's a great moment where he points out that exact point. Uh, He's trying to talk to Gary about his family and giving him a little bit of backstory to where he came from, stuff that he hasn't known up to then. And he says, you aren't telling me everything, Gary, and said, no, Wolf said blandly, I'm not. I'm telling you as much as it's safe for you to know for right now. If you knew certain things, you'd act differently, and people would notice that. It's safer if you stay ordinary for a while longer. You mean ignorant, Gary and accused. All right, ignorant, then. Do you want to hear the story, or do you want to argue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and we, we buy that for the, for the character. I think, I think he uses that as a great tool 
for moving and I and I think that's kind of his challenge to the reader. Do you want to do you want to know the rest of the story cuz I got a lot more to tell you. I think so I think Just keep moving on. There's a and I wish five. I could I wish I could remember where it was exactly but uh Belgarath makes Oh, gosh. My train of thought just lost. So I'm going to go ahead and drop it before I stall for way too long. Um, anyone else have any final points they want to bring up before we wrap up? We're running low on time here. so um, Yeah, I found one more thing. Okay. Uh, if you guys want to hear it, just uh, one more line. It, uh, fantasy books, are they do this for me. Hopefully other books, if it's necessary, do this for other people as well. But delivering little messages that you can take in and and uh, work into your your life right and make you a better person that's what books are supposed to ultimately do fantasy books do that for me um anyway there's a, a point when garion is realizing that his world is being turned upside down his aunt pole may or may not be his aunt pole he thinks uh you know she's not really related this woman um and uh and so he's being a little whiny uh what I won't use the word 15 year old 15 year old there you go that's a good word an adolescent uh anyway and wolf comes to him and says you know just stop it and so his line is um he says don't make things more difficult for your aunt just because the world isn't exactly to your liking that's not only childish it's ill-mannered and you're a better boy than that and I don't care how old you are that's good advice just because things aren't going your way don't take it out on other people it's not their fault, you know. Yeah. So that's that's my final thought. Look like for it. those little nuggets. That was a little nugget for me. Stop like being it. a little adolescent. There's a lot that's of those one. and some great ones from Silk too as you go along. Oh. But I think I we're we're pretty much out of time. So I'm going to hand the reins back to Craig. Um. All right. Fine. Because oh, I haven't Lord. taken because I haven't taken them enough for this episode. Right. Um. <laughs> you guys, thank you uh, so much for listening. I I hope that you will stick with us through this series. Obviously, this is a five book uh, series, and so this will be a five episode podcast series. Uh, we're going to go through the whole thing. I'm very excited because obviously, as you can tell, I've never read these books. This is a brand new adventure for me. This is a whole lot. A whole lot. Uh of new names and places and things to learn. It's so fun to be on the other side of throwing someone into a world. Right? I, know, right? I am having a delightful time. <laughs> I now understand why you guys were so looking so forward to every podcast because we would go in and go, wow! And, and, and I'm like hoping that, that the joy that you guys are feeling watching me squirm, I hope that our listeners can take this as well because I'm guessing that if you're listening to this and, and we've published it recently, it's because you're a big fan of the Belgariad and you wanted to kind of get involved and hear our little book club discussion of the Belgariad. That's what we made this for. But I want to have you guys take this a little further. Take it to your friends, especially people who you know have a taste for this sort of thing, but maybe haven't read those classic fantasy novels. I know I've missed out on a ton of them, uh, and I'm really enjoying going back and reading this. And what I would hope is that uh, that this gives you uh, something of an incentive to go back to your friends, your family, and say, hey, there are really worthwhile books out there. Here's one of them. Read it. There's a fun podcast discussion to go along with it. I mean... It's four guys. They get around a table. They start talking like they know what they're doing. It's great. You'll love it. So, um, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoy it and and, uh, take it the way that we uh, intend to give it to you. Um, Enjoy the Belgariad. Enjoy the podcast. And we will see you all uh, for Queen uh, Queen of Sorcery. Sorcery. Okay, thanks, guys. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.